You're listening to Dodge Movie Podcast. Your hosts are Christy and Mike Dodge, the founders of Dodge Media Productions. We produce films and podcasts, so this is a podcast about films. Join them as they share their passion for filmmaking. Welcome back, everybody, to the Dodge Movie Podcast. We are kicking off January and our new year... In this new year, we are not going to talk about the themes. We are going to let you guys guess the themes and they will be revealed on our fourth episode or fifth in some cases of the month. You can look to social media for some clues. You can look at the four movies we chose for clues and email us your guesses for each month what you think the theme of that month is. The email that you will send it to is christy at dodgemediaproductions.com and that will be linked in the show notes where, and you can guess as many times as you want until the end of the month, I guess. And that's what we're doing. So today we are talking about the 1989 Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. The director is Stephen Herrick. He did Critters in 1986 and Mr. Holland's Opus in 1995. I remember that movie. Bit of range between Bill and Ted and Mr. Holland's Opus. Yes, yeah, a bit of range is right. It was written by Chris Matheson, and they knew each other from, I believe, it was either like film school or it was like a Groundlings-like group. Okay. And he wrote this one, and he wrote... Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, and he also wrote the 2020 remake, or not remake, but the trilogy, I guess. Yeah, the third. Of Bill and Ted Face the Music. It was also written by Ed Solomon, who did Men in Black in 97, and Now You See Me 2 in 2016. Okay. So a little bit of range there, too. Was like the first one a hack, and they brought him in for (laughs) For Now You See Me 2? To to punch it up a bit. Um, It stars uh, Keanu Reeves as Theodore Ted Logan and Alex Winter as Bill S. Preston. Esquire, which is technically incorrect. He is not an Esquire. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I got confused. I thought you were saying that the S. I know that that's not how you spell Esquire. Right. Yeah. But I thought you but, were but, making an S. Esquire joke. He may have been, and I missed it. But in, no. I think early in the film, he says. He does say that. Bill you're right. Bill S. Preston, Esquire. Yeah. No, you're right. Um, George Carlin, my fave, is, is Rufus, and Jane Weedlin. I just threw in there because um, she's Joan of Arc, and I That's recognized right. her from the Go-Go's. Her lips are sealed. Yes. Um, the DP is Tim Surdict, and he also was on Critters, and then, coincidentally enough, a fan of, or we are a fan of, Dax Shepard, he DP'd Idiocracy. Oh, wow. In 2006. Nice connection. Right? Six Degrees of Dax Shepard. <laughs> it was filmed in and around Southern California and also Phoenix, Scottsdale, Tempe, Mesa, Flagstaff. So a lot of uh, Arizona. The synopsis for this film is two rock and roll teens on the verge of failing their class are approached by a time machine that helps them make the ultimate history presentation. I have... Four. No, I have five taglines. Five taglines. All right. For Udo. So I hope he's listening in. History is about to be rewritten by two guys who can't spell. (laughs) All right. I like it. (laughs) You like it? Uh, Time flies when you're having fun. Nah. Yeah. Too pedestrian. That was the studio executive's idea, and they just threw it in there (laughs) to keep him happy. 
Party on, dudes. Okay, but doesn't really tell us about the film. Right. Brace yourself, amigos, for the most triumphant video. Uh, no. <laughs> that was on the UK VHS box. The funniest comedy in the history of history. First one by far. Yeah, well, I Big messed winner. up the last one. Still. Okay. Alrighty. I've been watching and been doing my homework. This is a big favorite of yours. So I tried to learn what I could about it. So I may sprinkle in some stuff. But why don't you kick us off with your pickup line? Hi, welcome to the future. San Dimas, California, 2688. I believe this is spoken by Rufus. Uh, little VO. So this being a favorite of yours, what do you, what did you resonate as a kid? And then now as an adult filmmaker, well, not an adult filmmaker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Whoops. Now that you're a grown up and you make films, <laughs> what did you, what, what did you notice like this time versus when you were a teenager watching it in the cinematography and the writing? So for full disclosure, I'm going to tell the listeners that this is one of the few films that I gave a 10 out of 10 on IMDb. And that is maybe less because of fantastic cinematography or other things, which is not to say it's not a good film, but more just I resonated with it. I think it was a combination of things, but ultimately it captured basically, in a humorous way, the idiots that... I knew growing up, right? So there's some nostalgia to it, even though I was uh, 21, I think, when it came out. There's the music and the soundtrack is exactly the music of the, of, of kind of my high school mm-hmm. years. The humor is definitely right, uh, right up my alley. It's cleverly plotted because as much as you think of it as a dumb movie about these two stoners, let's be honest... Mm-hmm. It actually, as a time travel movie, you actually have to make it link up, Mm -hmm. right? It's a challenge to get it to work correctly. And one of the things, for example, is the opening scene where we first meet Keanu Reeves as Ted's dad. He's looking for his keys, and that comes back later in the film. So they have to keep it internally consistent. It's got basically a bunch of callbacks, right, to your knowledge of of history. Mm -hmm. If you look at the way the film is put together, it's actually shot well. But also it gives us the birth of Keanu Reeves, mm-hmm. right? That was, uh, he he expressed a fear that he was going to always be identified with that character. Mm-hmm. And some of us said, and what's the problem here, <laughs> right? That was a total hoot. And it sent Alex Winter on a career of directing. So the, the film really, I think ultimately though, what resonates with me is those people, right? Like <laughs> these are the idiots I went to school with or hung out with. It's so interesting that you say that because I know a couple of maybe only one of your high school friends, but I've heard all your stories and I I wouldn't have thought that these type of kids would have been your friends. Well, so first of all, I had one friend out of every friend group. So I had a wide variety. And I'm not necessarily saying that these were, were my dearest and nearest friends as much as these are the people that were of my era. Right. Ross lived in San Dimas. There was a water park in San Dimas that like I have been to a Circle K Mm -hmm. Uh, like the. okay. so the world that they are living in before they get in the time machine. (laughs) Yeah. Is is a world that you resonate with. Yes. None of my friends failed history. Right. Right. That's what I was going to say. Like, you're a smart guy and and I know Eric's really smart. 
so it just seems like you wouldn't have hung out. Like, I know you weren't a stoner. No, but these are people that I, I mean, it resonated with kind of the milieu that I, I, I was in. Definitely right. much okay. like Diane Fossey, Gorillas in the Mist. I was <laughs> a little- This was your I, jungle? <laughs> yeah, I, I was separate from them, but I, this is so different than- it was that kind of culture, that era was so tight. Uh, Van Halen came from Pasadena. This was kind of, you know, just that was the era. So imagine like if you are if you grew up in Hawaii and there's a film about Hawaii, you're like, oh my gosh, I totally recognize okay. that. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. So it's interesting that you say, you know, we like to do indie movies. This very much was oh. an indie movie of its era. Oh, yeah. I think it probably, I mean, I don't want to spoil the getting to the numbers part, but I think it probably outperformed its budget by a lot because it was kind of, at least amongst my crowd, a viral hit. Yeah. Right. So it was produced by Dino De Laurentiis. I believe that once it was made, no, I think they either tested it or they just didn't think anybody would buy it. So it sat on a shelf for like a year. Oh, my gosh. Before it came out. And and part of that could have been like one company dissolved and so another company bought right. it and they were kind of, there was even some thought that it wouldn't even make, because this was the time, ironic, because this is almost like wrapped back around, some movies were made just to appear on like an HBO or whatever. Right. And so they thought it may not even make HBO. <laughs> and so it sat on the shelf. And so it is kind of like the little indie that could. Right. Because Alex even thought like, oh, shoot, nobody's going to see this cool thing I did. Mm-hmm. And then and then it was like a big hit. But I think it was a slow. Yeah, I don't know. Because I don't think it had a marketing budget behind it. I don't remember so that at all. it was word of mouth from you and your buddies. Right. All of me and my maggoty friends. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah, uh, it, it could very well have, have been just entirely that because I do remember seeing it in the theater, but I don't. back then I didn't really follow Variety or Box mm-hmm. Office Mojo. So right. I didn't really have a sense for how much it was advertised or how well it was doing. Other than people I know knew the jokes, they'd obviously seen the film. Right. Oh, okay. Um, so what things stuck out to you watching it this time in the in the realm of cinematography? Well, the, 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 the first thing is kind of, I don't know if it's marginally cinematography, but titling, right? Um, I just, I had never noticed before what a strange font they use for the titles. Mm-hmm. The, the, the majuscule or larger letters don't look to be from the same font family as the minuscule or smaller letters. Mm-hmm. It, that's bizarre. But... I did like how they had the giant shoulder-mounted video camera to film their own video, and they showed it. That was actually, the viewer got to see that Mm -hmm. footage. That was a neat trick. That was very reminiscent of that time, you're right. Yeah, Mm -hmm. of a period. I was really surprised at how well the visual effects held up over time. And to me, that really is credit to the filmmakers for putting them in the film in a way that didn't rely on them. Cause I think if, if it was like, you know, original 1978 star Wars, pew, pew, it would maybe not look as good, but it was, they were, they were kind of a sprinkling, but that was amazing. I thought. When you say visual effects, do you mean when the time machine was transported? 
Yeah, and the, the like the lightning effects mm-hmm, that they mm-hmm. did on it and stuff. There is a neat crane shot from inside the saloon when they first walk into the saloon that I, I had never noticed before. But now when I saw it, I was like, oh, that's a non-trivial setup. Interesting how mm-hmm. they did that. Uh, tons of fog in the medieval <laughs> interiors. They, apparently it was a foggy time. Well, they're in England. But they did neat little tricks like when, when the phone booth travels through time, it does lightning. And when they pick up Beethoven... Um, you see the lightning from a shot of the piano keys, not from the actual thing itself. And that's where I said it's it's actually a well-made film, even though it's kind of silly and dopey, right? There's a wonderful circle dissolve, which you never see anymore. No. So that was that was kind of fun. High-speed housework montage, again, rarely seeing the high speed when they speed up the footage, you know? And then there's also there's the historical figures at the mall montage. So I thought it was actually shot pretty well. It's, you know, it's not like 1917 where people are, are going to look at that, only watch the film just for the cinematography maybe, but I thought it was shot really well for what is basically a dumb comedy about two stoners. Right. The only... The only scene or set that I thought looked a little hokey is and I can't remember what they called it but when when Clarence Clemens is in the yeah the uh, the the like futuristic courtroom kind of place yeah that just seemed a little on the yeah that seemed like 1989 <laughs> um but speaking of sets this is a, a thing where maybe we have a listener who is um into this who can tell me but when they're in the castle, there's a scene where the characters go down the stairs. It might be when Ted falls down the stairs in his armor, mm-hmm. but it's a circular staircase. And that was how they made the staircases in the corners of the building. Mm-hmm. But I remember reading that they circled one very particular direction to give the defenders who would be higher up on the stairs an advantage. And this staircase looked backward for that. Mm. So I would love it if we have a listener who is an expert in medieval castle construction (laughs) who could tell us if, if in fact, the staircase was twisting the correct direction. Well, since we're talking about sets, a couple of tidbits that I picked up doing my research was that according to Alex Winter, filming in the phone booth was so unpleasant that he and Reeves, as he calls him, Ah. nicknamed it the death box. Oh, I bet. I was going to ask if they had to build a separate one because by the end, they have so many people Mm -hmm. in the phone booth, even if you had taken the phone out, which Mm -hmm. if you recall, and for some of our younger listeners, they may not, The phone was in a corner and it had a little triangular kind of like shelf that it was beneath it. So you didn't even get the full square. And I don't know that you could fit two people in there comfortably, not 12. I agree. I I think there were a couple of times I could tell that they had built a separate one. The actual phone booth, I know they put on a crane and, and would you know, kind of drop into place when it was landing, obviously with no one inside, and pick it up when it was taking off. And the actual phone booth time machine was given away as a contest prize by Nintendo Power Magazine, which was promoting the Bill and Ted's excellent video game adventure in 1991. Who got that? I don't know. I need to talk to this person. (laughs) Yeah, I thought it was interesting that they have the technology to travel through time, yet it depends on fragile bunny ears. (laughs) Right. You know what that was? It was the um, frame of an umbrella. Oh, now that you mentioned it, it's totally like that. (laughs) But it looked like red anodized aluminum. 
So maybe they had a, a higher end umbrella, but totally now I see that that you say that. Thank yeah. you. I yeah. will now see that every time I watch oh, it. Oh, sorry. Um, no, that's a good thing. And in the original script, the time machine was supposed to be a 1969, of course, Chevy van. The filmmakers thought it was too similar to Back to the Future from 85, so they changed it to a phone booth. And this um, person who put this tidbit into IMDb said, right. apparently unconcerned that Doctor Who from 63 <laughs> uses a police telephone box as a time machine. <laughs> right. A little, uh, what do they call that? Parallel evolution. centric No, oh. <laughs> like when you're not aware of other. Oh, yeah, I guess. Although one could argue that in 1989, Doctor Who was not very popular in the U.S. No, that's what I'm saying. Well, I don't think that's because we were dumb little Americans. I think it was because it just wasn't shown. When I was not much younger than 89, it was only shown on UHF channels. Like on Sunday afternoons. So oh. I think Doctor Who kind of didn't exist for the filmmakers. There's no way for them to. No way to know. <laughs> yeah, no way to know. <laughs> Unless we can get Matheson and, and De Laurentiis on the horn. <laughs> right. How about writing? What did you love about the structure of the story? I mean, you spoke to it a little bit. Right. So they set up early on the inciting incident is they're going to fail. And then Ted has to go to military school in Alaska. So we set this up. But a nice little tidbit is on the chalkboard behind Bernie Casey as the stern history teacher are written the names of the people they have to go get, mm-hmm. which is that was a nice touch. And then under Socrates, it says Socratic method. And so that shows us right away who they are. And there's even a cut where it goes to a cuckoo clock to show that they're just morons. <laughs> um, and there's the whole gag about remember when you I asked your mom to the prom shut up Ted mm-hmm. that his parents like got divorced and his dad remarried one of his classmates and that whole thing so that shows how the two kids don't have a home environment that really is supportive of them but they're good natured I think that's kind of the key is they're Not very bright, but their hearts are in the right place. Mm -hmm. And I don't think the film works if we don't kind of fall in love with them. We want them to succeed, even though they're kind of not the smartest or the most academically inclined, let's say. Mm -hmm. And we even see that with the, the, we're going to be the greatest band ever. Do you think we should actually learn to play the instruments? (laughs) That you can see there's a kernel of awareness in there, but they're basically just teenage idiots, right? And But again, I like how they set up that they have to accomplish this goal, right? It's got a series of stages, but then there's the there's a challenge thrown in front of them because they have a little damage to the umbrella. And ultimately, you see that they succeed, but they succeed in a way that feels, I think, to the audience like they have changed they have become slightly better and i actually even though i've seen the film many times and i know what happens when they're standing outside the police station and it's like oh we got to remember to come back and put this here and do that there i'm still nervous because like (laughs) oh my gosh these guys are idiots they're not going to remember right so i think you know i bought into the premise Mm -hmm. right of of these two characters and i think for me me and a dumb buddy going places doing stuff that's in some sense, 
a road movie like Hope and Crosby. Yeah, that's exactly what the filmmakers said. They were hoping it would be like a Hope and Crosby. Um, well, they landed it perfectly. Yeah. Do you think that for you, because you were much more literate, much more literate than Bill and Ted, <laughs> and you would have known all these different historical figures, was there part of that that, that appealed to you? You mean that I was kind of in on the joke or that I, I knew the answers? Oh, this was something that I found interesting. Did you realize that all of the people that they went back and got died like a horrible, tragic death? Oh, Lincoln and Miss of Arc, I totally would think that. Genghis Khan, you could assume, because he was involved in warfare. Socrates was forced to take poison, but I didn't know Beethoven and Sigmund Freud. Um, I can't remember, but... It's in the trivia, so. <laughs> right. And Napoleon. Yeah. So, but to me, as an example of the subtle humor that I find funny, mm -hmm. there when they go to the water park, or specifically when Napoleon goes, <laughs> there's a woman there and she says, 11 children. And then he walks in as part of that group. And I thought, what a subtle short joke. Right. <laughs> well, right. and I think there was a point, you know, like there's that whole Napoleon complex that right. the the idea is, I'm not saying this is a thing, but, but it, I think it is documented or maybe not. <laughs> maybe it's just a stereotype. Forgive me, anybody who takes offense to this, but that that short traditionally men mm -hmm. um, are like grumpy and angry because they've got to elevate their personality to make up for what they feel right. is Perceived a lack, of, lack of sight. Right. And so, and there's one point where he doesn't, I think it was at the water park, he doesn't get something he wants and mm -hmm. he just gets really angry. And he something. starts shouting, Melda, 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 <laughs> which is again, funny. I, I, I do like um, people swearing in other languages. <laughs> yeah. That's always funny. And I love a grown up tantrum. Grown up tantrums are always They're funny. Just funny. You look ridiculous, everybody who's having a right. grown up. All tantrum. of us. It's not just you, me too. Right. So, how about editing? Did you, you mentioned the circle transition? Yeah. Was there any other editing things that. Well, and I had already mentioned the cuckoo edit where they right. get to the cuckoo clock. Those are really the, the editing. I have to say, I, I don't pay as close attention to the editing as you might. What was it about the costumes that stuck out to you as we watched this? Both Bill and Ted's outfits were canonically period correct, in my opinion. So the 80s had the half t-shirt that, that Bill is wearing for mm -hmm. some reason. That was popular, at least in SoCal, to cut off the t-shirt. He also wrapped like a flannel shirt around his waist. Mm -hmm. That was in the white Chuck Taylors. Mm -hmm. Had a red pair right about that era. So I thought that was good. What I didn't quite follow was Ted's outfit because he has a t-shirt, a waistcoat, a jeans jacket with sweatpants beneath board shorts. That's a lot of clothing for Southern California. <laughs> yeah. uh, but you can see, though, that it is actually it's quite an independent film because the actor who plays Socrates has farm arms. They didn't didn't have the ability to just tan up his arm a little bit. And and for those not playing along at home, uh, in Greece, if you were like a, a toga-like garment, you would not have. I had a question for superfan Miriam or other haberdashers. If Napoleon's undergarments were period correct, I was unable to find with some substantial Googling an answer to whether that outfit was period correct. But... Definitely period correct were the letterman's jackets and mullets on the football players at San Dimas High. <laughs> that was great. 
This kind of goes with casting. As they were casting for Bill and Ted, originally they were both reading, Keanu Reeves was reading for Bill and Alex Winters was was reading for Ted. And what they would do is they would bring two guys in and have them read together. And then they would send one out and like, so they would leave Alex in there and they would bring in another young actor trying to get the part. And then they would send them out and then they would try the different actors, different pairs together to see, you know, the chemistry. And it's interesting that you bring up the the dress. They said they all, they both almost walked in wearing almost exactly what they were wearing <laughs> in the film. So it's funny you talk about it being hot, but that apparently is what Keanu was wearing he when he walked in. He must run cold, yeah. And you can find their audition on YouTube. Oh, I now must watch that. <laughs> it was a little slow for me, but I think you probably would enjoy it. Sure, yes, and a young Keanu. Yeah. What I loved, and I think this is important when you're casting, they talk about chemistry tests, is the the director said every time he would go out into the waiting room that those two were just like, but, 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 like chiming back and forth. Right. Um, they both rode motorcycles, so that's where they connected. They both loved the same kind of music, so that's where they connected. They, there was a third topic that they just totally vibed on. And when he would go get one of them, they'd be like, okay, I'll be right back, you know, kind of. And then he, they would test him. They would test one of them with another actor. And when they sent him back out, they would just pick up where they left off. And so I think it was, and they're still friends like to this day. Right. And I think it's that friendship and the connection that they both made and how they kind of just vibed. I think that's a lot of what makes this movie work. Yeah. And maybe that's why I like it so much because I shared the love of this movie with my good buddy, Joe. Mm Mm-hmm. And I feel like that maybe is it, is it calls to just that the, the two bros, right? Yeah, share with me what you shared while we were watching it about you and Joe. Yeah, we love that movie so much that there was a day when we sat in his office. We were, I mean, it was not long after the film came out. This is amazing. We must have watched it on a video cassette. And I, and I honestly believe, I'm not exaggerating, I honestly believe we did the entire movie's dialogue from scratch accurately <laughs> it's it's frightening how well we knew that movie <laughs> right so were you bill or ted oh i was a, i was bill always you were always bill okay <laughs> yeah all right did we have any head trauma in this film we actually did um i i would argue that there was some head trauma when napoleon gets blown up by a cannon it, it, when we first see him, Ted whacks Bill in the head with a sword and then Ted rolls down the stairs when they're in the medieval castle. So I'm going to say that counts for both people getting some head drama. And then this maybe counts when Genghis Khan knocks off the mannequin head with a baseball bat. Right. How about a smoochie? Smoochie, smoochie, smoochie. Did, he, did Bill or Ted get lucky? I don't recall them actually smooching the beautiful babes from England. Now, they come back in Bogus Journey. They do come back in Bogus Journey. I don't think in Face the Music. Do you have a driving review? Does the time machine count as a vehicle? I suppose it does count as a vehicle. Um, I I guess the lesson for our younger viewers is pay close attention to what numbers you're dialing when time traveling. Missy, who is Bill's stepmom, 
former classmate. She drives a red 86 Fox body Mustang convertible, which I think is exactly accurate for that character in that era. And then later, inexplicably, she switches to a Mercury Grand Marquis wagon. I, I mean, other than the fact that now there are the people from the past that they she needs to cart around, it didn't make sense to me. There's no explanation. So maybe that, that was left on the, the cutting room floor. Maybe. I, I think we would be remiss if we didn't mention that there is a humorous scene in the film where both Bill and Ted use the F word that is pejorative for gents who prefer the company of gents. It is period correct. It is not strictly used to insult someone of that persuasion, but uh, for the modern viewer, it, it may be a little off-putting. Mm-hmm. But again, uh, for that era, that was completely representative dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. N- at the time, I don't think anybody blinked. But now to the modern viewer, it comes across a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Not cool. Shall we go to the numbers? Let's go to the numbers. This film, like I said, was in 1980, made in 1989. It had a budget. This is way more than I would have thought, although with today's standards, $10 million. Wow. Is it the visual effects or the, well, it's not the music. There's hardly any bands you know by name. I think they probably came relatively cheap. And no stars. I mean, it couldn't have been cheap maybe to go to Arizona in right. 89. I mean, Arizona is a big filming area now, but I don't know if it was in 89. So both Carlin and Weedland's careers were burgeoning. I don't know that they would have been that expensive to get. Yeah, that's, um. I don't know where that went. I, I know. know. It's got to be visual effects. Right? But it did quite well. It quadrupled it. It had a domestic and worldwide income of forty point five million. Nice. So four times, and today that would be like a movie making ninety three million. Oh, that's good film. Good film. Yeah, uh, it got a six point nine out of ten on Rotten Tomatoes, and critics <sighs> gave it an eighty two percent. So critics yeah. love this movie. Good film. Audiences not as much, but still, it's fresh at seventy five percent. That might be that the the court demo for this film doesn't go on Rotten Tomatoes so much. I I agree with that. I have to say, I know this is a favorite of yours, but I kind of got a little... What? <laughs> ...watching it, and so I wonder if this appeals to females. I don't, I don't know. Well, it's got two good-looking <laughs> fellers in there. That's true, that's true. Yeah, and, <laughs> and Alex shows a little skin, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but speaking, though, of the soundtrack, I do recommend for... Any of our listeners that were in their teens in the 80s and liked rock music, hard rock, you should definitely give the soundtrack a listen. It's yeah. a good one. It's a good representative, like you said, of the time. It comes in at 90 minutes, so a good little quick kind of thing to, to watch. It's rated PG, and it's listed as an adventure comedy music film. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, like I said... Um, That's our first film for the month of January. We are doing a new game with y'all to try to get some audience engagement. We would love to hear from you. This is your first clue into figuring out 
uh, what theme January is with Bill and Ted, you can see the other three films on our social media posts. I believe that that will come out on Thursdays. It will You'll see what all four films are and you can send in your guesses as to what you think our theme for the month of January is. Check the show notes for the email to send it to or you can call us with your guess at 971-245-4148 to give your guess or you can even text us your guess on that number and never forget dodges never stop and neither do the movies thanks for listening to dodge movie podcast with christy and mike dodge of dodge media productions to find out more about this podcast and what we do go to dodgemediaproductions.com subscribe Share, leave a comment, and tell us what we should watch next. Dodges never stop, and neither do the movies.